is John 21. I think that sounds good, Janie. John 21, um, let's start in prayer. Almighty God, what a wonderful journey we've had with you, studying John's gospel as he lived with you. As we close it up today, just speak to our hearts, help our minds to comprehend the lessons that you have for us. Amen. Well, John lived with Christ for three years. We got through it in a handful of months here, didn't we? As we come to the close here, we're kind of together with John and the rest of the apostles, not knowing what to do. What, what's, what's ahead? What lies ahead? You know, what lies ahead in our lives next year? I mean, 2020 was a horrific year into 21. You know, what, what's, what's happening here? So it's a good lesson for all of us to kind of look ahead and see how God's still going to take care of us and what's expected of us, because this was all new territory for the apostles. They had lived with Jesus, and now he wasn't going to be living with them anymore. So in this lesson, we're going to take a look at when we attempt to live our lives as Christians without Christ's help, without his direction. You know, we've got the Bible. We can kind of maybe figure it out and do it. And, you know, it's kind of clear if we can read, you know, whatever. Um, Or if we really submit and yield and do it in his power, the difference that there is. Peter is going to learn this lesson. Well, all the apostles are going to learn it here with this. So, the first five verses we're going to look at first. Human weakness versus failure. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. In that one sentence, he says he reveals himself two times. Kind of odd, isn't it? It's kind of redundant. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. But right off the bat, we're seeing that it's Jesus himself who has to reveal himself. And twice, as we go through this chapter, we will notice that twice there's an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. In verse 7, we have John saying to Peter, it's the Lord. And then down in verse 12, we have the comment where it says, no one needed to ask who it was, because they all knew it was the Lord, because Jesus revealed himself to them two times. And it's a very interesting thing for us to remember that unless Jesus reveals himself to somebody, they're not going to recognize him. It's definitely a call. It's a calling. After his resurrection, he was unrecognizable unless he manifested himself. So it's letting us know like 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit can, can call Jesus as Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's all God's work. It's his revealing. It's it's his spirit's opening up of these pages. It's God calling somebody, him revealing himself to somebody. 
Romans 3.11 says, there is no one who seeks God. Therefore, if there's nobody that seeks God, because we're spiritually dead, then it's necessary for the Son of Man to come to seek and to save the lost. Okay? So we are his workmanship. This is all about him. So right from the get-go, we're learning that it's not what we're going to do. It's not in our effort. It's going to be him. So moving on to verse 2 to 5. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, oh, we'll, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. We'll stop right there. So were the disciples being disobedient? I don't think so. They were in, in the area, on the mountain, kind of waiting. I, we don't know how long they were there hanging out because Jesus told them to go there. Um, but they started to get restless. They didn't know what to do. We're hanging out waiting. Don't we hate to wait? We hate to wait. But there's something called an act of waiting that we can do as we are waiting. We can do other things with our time. Peter, unsettled, restless, decides, let's just go fishing. We're just going to go fishing. So therefore, they had to go off the mountain, because there's, you know, really down to where the lake was, and they get in the boat. He was impatient, maybe impulsive, like he says, you know, just the heck with this. I'm, I'm going to go fishing. It wasn't recreational fishing. It wasn't like, well, let's, you know, as we wait for God, let's just see if we can't grab a few down there wasn't that. He was saying, let's return. I'm, I, I've, I've had enough. I, I'm going to go fishing. Let's go back to our old way of life. Let's go back to something that we know what we can do and we know we do it well, because right now we're just hanging out here and we don't know if we can even pull this off what he's asking us to do. And so they went down and they got into the boat. They just didn't get in a boat. They got in the boat, their fishing boat. They got into their line of work again, and they returned to that. And they fished all night long, and they caught nothing. They caught nothing. But Jesus had other plans for them. Once God calls a person, there's no going back to your old way of living. Once God calls somebody and takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, that's a whole new game now. And there's no going back to the old way of living. So they tried, though. They tried to go back. They fished all night long. They failed. They failed at it. And Jesus calls from the shore. Did you guys notice what he calls them? We've noticed that throughout this gospel. He's called them friend, right? servants, servants, and then friends. And now he's calling them children. Children. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot in what people call you. Um, Children. The word is lads, like lads, half-grown children. Children who are old enough to kind of work. We might even call them adolescents. It can even be translated into what we would talk about today as an immature Christian. Immature Christian. Hey, children, lads, people who have, that are still on spiritual milk and need to eat spiritual meat, 
See, they were kind of still in the milk thing, and so he's like referring to probably their, their spiritual growth at that time. But he's also calling them children because he wants to demonstrate to them that he is going to provide for their needs. They don't have to worry. They don't have to be restless. He's still going to take care of them the way he did for the last three years. So they answer no. They haven't caught anything. And in verse 6, he said to them, Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, why they did this, I don't know, because they're professional fishermen, and here's this guy on the beach saying, Well, just throw the net over on their side. For whatever reason, maybe the authority in his voice, whatever, he did refer to them as children. So they cast it, and now they were, unable, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus had kept the fish away from that boat all night long. He's just probably, yeah, I know, he's probably snickering up there, yeah. <laughs> I'm in charge of the fish. I'm in charge of the success that you have in life, you know. So he's kept all those little fishies away. And then in the morning, he moved this school of fish over to the right side of the boat. But it also reminded them of a parallel that they had when Jesus first called them to follow me in Luke 5, 1 to 7. Told them to do the same thing. I had to stop and ponder on that when I was studying it. Because for us in this Bible study class, what we did this year... When he called us to do something different, way different, similar but different, to to not be a community Bible study class anymore, but it was okay to cast our net on the other side. It was okay to throw our net on the other side. It was okay to do something different. So I'm just looking for that big catch that we're waiting for, right? (laughs) It's okay to change our method if it is at the direction of of God, all right? It's okay to change our method if it's at the direction of God. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, we know who that is by now, right? Good old John. Therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. There it was revealed. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, mm, that not, not a whole lot changes here. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work, and, and a, a working person would not would go in front of a, someone they looked up to half-clothed. They, they were stripped for work because hauling in nets and doing all that stuff, I mean, a garment would be too cumbersome. So they were stripped for work, but when he knew it was the Lord, when John revealed that to him, he throws on his coat, and he jumps into the water. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So, completely abandons what he's doing, jumps in the water, and goes, swims to the shoreline. They realized it was Jesus, and only he could do something supernatural as this. There's a difference between working God's way and working man's way. And when we become a follower of Christ, we have to do things God's way. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever we do, right? Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, 
We do all to the glory of God. And when we do something to the glory of God, that means we're doing it in obedience to him, following him with that. That glorifies him. It's not that, okay, he's, he's called me to do this, and okay, I got this, God. I'm going to go, and I'm going to do it. No. We have to prayerfully be led by him, no matter what we do in life. And when, whether we do eat or drink, that's pretty much basic stuff, isn't it? How I brush my teeth. Should I get a water pick, God? I mean, really. I love my water pick, actually. I'm kind of addicted to it now. It was a good decision to make, but for years I didn't want to do it. And one day I said, God should, you know, and I thought they were too expensive. They're not. They're cheap. Anyways, I had to pray about it. Um, Silly example. I don't know why these things come up to my mind sometimes. I want you to notice something else about Peter and, and John also in this instance. John was the first one to perceive it was Christ. Peter was the first one to act. We saw that at the tomb, didn't we? John was the first one to perceive, and Peter was the first one to run in there and act. Different personalities here. So they rowed that boat in with all that stuff in there. Verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Again, your commentary also mentions that this word for charcoal fire is the only other one where Peter was on the night that He betrayed Jesus when he was warming his hands by that charcoal fire. Same word. And the the sense of smell is probably the most stimulating sense that we have to trigger a memory, is a sense of smell. More so than if you hear a song and remember something, or hear something, or taste something. If you smell something that you can associate with with a memory, it pulls it right back up. So here it is. They smell the fire in that place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now I look at this and say, Was he on an adrenaline high or what to haul in that huge thing? Somebody calculated maybe it'd be like 300 pounds. But here it is. The the others were struggling to drag it in through the water, and Peter just goes out there all by himself and hauls in that net, hauls it in himself. 153? We can go round and round about that. A lot of different things. But one thing, probably the main the, the, the number one thing to take out of this is that it's an eyewitness account. Maybe they counted it. Wow, how many did we really get? Or maybe they were counting them to divide it up amongst them. I don't know. But for me, um, I'll say this, and not all of you might follow me with this, but 153, um, when you add up the numbers between 1 and 17, it comes to 153. And if you're a Q follower, you know what that number 17 is about. Is anybody a Q follower in here? Okay. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So that was kind of significant. So there it is with the fish. They haul them in, and Jesus was cooking breakfast for them. Um, He came to serve and not to be served. And he added their catch to the fire, 
he didn't have them supply the whole thing. But he, what he had also had, he went ahead and they added that to it. Each disciple, again, was convinced that it was the Lord. They didn't have to ask any questions. Why not? Because Jesus revealed himself to him. And he says to them, come and eat. Come and dine. There are four, five, five other places in the Gospels that Jesus has an invitation. John 1.39, come and see. Come and see. In Matthew 11, come and learn. Mark 6, 31, come and rest. In this verse, come and dine. And in Matthew 25, come and inherit. Come and see, learn, rest, dine, and inherit. Invitations by our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him, to draw near to him. And when he's going to call you in to do these things, he's going to let you see. He's going to teach you. He's going to give you rest. He's going to feed you. He's going to give you inheritance because it's an invitation to come to him. Success in a Christian's life only happens when we follow God's directions. We can be a Christian, but if we're not going to follow his directions on how to get something done— we're not going to really be very successful. It might have a worldly view of success, but it's not going to be success in God's economy. All right. Let's go on to verse 15 here, because this is the public restoration of Peter. And, And we already know that Jesus appeared to Peter one other time, but it's not recorded. It just says that he appeared to Peter and then to the others. But in this account here that John writes down, it's a public restoration because Jesus is talking to Peter in front of the others. And in this interaction, Jesus informs us and Peter and the others who are there witnessing it what's needed to be, a com- to be committed to him. What is needed to be committed to him and be successful at serving him as a Christian? Three things. Love, sacrifice, and follow, which is obey. We're going to look at those three. Verse 15, love is the first one. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, and says to Simon Peter, notice what he calls him, Simon, right? He goes back to the old name. He goes back to the name that he was called in his old self. Simon. It's like when my mother got mad at me, somehow my middle name got inserted in there, right? Molly Lynn, it's like, oh, gee, that's just a whole other thing, right? Or they use your full name and not your affectionate nickname. So he wasn't calling him Peter. He was calling him Simon here. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, let's just stop right there. It could be. That, well, before I move on, do you love? He's asking, do you love me more than these? We'll talk about these in a minute. Do you love me more than these? The number one commandment in the Old Testament for someone who has confessed faith in Christ, in God, is Deuteronomy 6.5. We know this. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And in the New Testament, it's reiterated, a true believer is marked by this love. Love the Lord your God God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love each other as yourself. Love is the marker of a Christian, of a believer. And obedience to Scripture is the essential evidence of genuine love. Because if you say you love God and, and, and hate your brother, which is a sin, then that's not good. If you say you love God and aren't obedient to him, that's not good. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So love is like the, the very first foundational thing that, that marks a believer in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 3. For this is love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So if Peter was going to be, play a crucial role in the early church, if Peter truly was going to be the rock, um, one of the, the, the foundational first leaders of the church, then he needed to be restored. He needed to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other apostles that were there needed to recognize and see that Peter truly was going to be that kind of leader and that Christ was really calling him to be that kind of leader, to be the leader of them. So at this point, he hadn't been acting like a rock. So he calls him Simon. Do you love me more than these? Now, there's a bunch of, what, what is these? These, these, these. Did Jesus just throw his arm out and point to the other disciples, apostles that were there? Did he throw his arm toward the boat and the fishing? Did he throw his arm? What did he throw? But these. You know what? I would like to think it's, it's all of that. Do you love me more? Do you love God more than anything else? So these could be his old way of life, the boat, the nets, the fishing paraphernalia, Right? Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So you're going to have to decide here, what are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Jesus Christ, or are you going to serve your own appetite, your old way of life before you were saved? Could be. Either or, I'd like to say also, it could be a mention about the other disciples, because in Matthew 26, 30, and 33, it says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. This is right before that he was going to be betrayed, he arrested. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's telling them, you're all going to fall away. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And he was, there he was at the shoreline, Galilee. Peter answers him. Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Okay? So again, Jesus is gently kind of rebuking him and putting his own words back and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? 
Where is your faith? Examine yourself. And this is what Scripture does. The Word of God is like self-examination. Now, let's go on. Do you love me more than these? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to me, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know nothing. You know everything. Freudian slip there. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times. We can go the simplistic route and say, oh, three denials three times. That's cool. You can, you can have a lot of faith on that. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Because again, we get hung up in translations. One word for love. I love pizza. I love my dog. I love my husband. I love God, right? Different words of love, but in our English language, it's love. We have to go back to the original Greek and see what was being asked there. Jesus uses, in the first two times, Simon, do you love me? Agapeo, which is the highest love of the will, the highest love that we can come when we will to love somebody, when we choose to love somebody like that. That is the highest ability that we can do. It's an unselfish love, and it implies total commitment. That's the, like the number one thing of love. Peter answers him with a different love. He answers him with phileo, which is a friendship. So Jesus is asking him, Peter, are you totally devoted to me? Do you love me? Are you self-sacrificing and love me? And Peter says to him, Lord, you know I like you as a, you know, you know I love you as a friend. This is what this, this is what this conversation is about. Peter at this point was not saying, no, God, you're, I'm just, you're, I'm just not going to love you that. No, I think Peter was so painfully aware of his denial that he couldn't possibly even think that he was able to even love Christ at that way. I think he was just so still broken, guilty, that he was not capable of loving in that highest form. Painfully aware of his disobedience. So they went through that second time. Again, Agapeo? Well, no, Phileo. Okay? Peter's brash pronouncements were a thing of the past. Now he was broken and humbled. Because before, yes, I love you with the highest love. I will never forsake you. You know, that was Peter. And now we see a different humbled Peter with this. Okay? And Jesus says, okay, Peter. He accepts his humble acknowledgement, and he recommissions, and he says, so demonstrate your love for me by tending my sheep. Not your sheep. Demonstrate your love for me by taking care of, of my followers, of my people. Love is an action word. And I've said this before. When the Trinity was in heaven, and they were having a discussion, and they said, wow, look at all those poor, broken people down there. Boy. Yeah, they're really lost. They're hopeless. 
I sure love them. Yeah, I love them too. Yeah, I love them too. Yeah. And then not do anything? Wouldn't have done any good, would it? Love is an action word. Love is a demonstration. Love needs to be demonstrated. And that's what God, Christ was saying to Peter. Demonstrate to me that you love me by taking care of my sheep. And he starts off with sheep, right? Starts off with sheep and then he, no, lambs. He starts out with lambs. Feed my lambs, which is just a kind of the itty-bitty, the innocent little sweet when they're still cute looking before they get into dirty 200-pound bumpy all over the... I know. (laughs) They're still nice. They have personalities. And he says to them, then tend my sheep as they get older. It's a living with them. It's a taking care of them and feed my sheep. It's 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 not just tell them about me and then walk away. You need to take care of them. You need to shepherd them. You need to be a shepherd to them. And so the last third time here, When Jesus says to him, he uses the word by Leo. And this is why Peter was so grieved, because Jesus lowered the ante. He lowered the bar on it, and he calls into question even the less than total devotion Peter thought he was safe in claiming. He claimed that, yeah, I can love you as a friend. And Jesus is even asking him to examine that, and that's why Peter was grieved. It was a total self-examination, a humbling, a, um, and that's what the Word of God does to us, doesn't it? It just truly puts us in our place. Who the heck are we? Really, who the heck are we? So the implication here is that his life so far, did not support even that level of love. Peter's heart was broken. But Jesus accepts his recognitions and his failures and his imperfections, and he graciously charges him with, then feed my sheep. That's the kind of person that he can use to serve, where I just, I don't even know if I can, I am capable of this. I don't know. When we go into a ministry saying, yeah, I can do this, you know, I'll do this, you know, constantly telling people in my work that are Christians, yeah, I'm really working hard. Are you working hard or are you listening to God? Is he doing the work? You know, what's really going on here? We've got to understand, we've got, we've got to give credit where credit's due. Doing it his way, submitting things to him. All right, verse 18. Here we have our final truly, truly. Do you know how many there were in the Gospel of John? Any guess? Final truly, truly. 25. This is the 25th time that Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a significant truth is happening here, okay? Pay attention to what I'm going to say. And these are now the committed things that that we have love, and now we're going to look at a sacrifice. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is to show that he would die by crucifixion. Okay? So, a committed Christian not only loves God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, but he also sacrifices everything. It's a martyrdom that would happen. Peter was being told by God, by Christ right now, that he would die crucified. 
take up your cross and follow me. To die to Christ is, is a self-denial, truly a cru- self-crucified day-to-day day thing. Even though it's not a physical death, although we, it makes a reference to his physical death, it is a day-to-day dying to self. Not my will, but your will be done. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Okay? So here it is. When I first read this, I thought, oh my gosh, how horrible. Peter spent the next 34 years of his life facing when's death going to come. But you know, that's not the case here. Peter spent the next 34 years living each day to its fullest. To its fullest. Not knowing, knowing that yet it would come. He wasn't like hiding out someplace, oh, they're going to come and crucify me or whatever. You know, he lived it fully. Fully aware so much so that the writings, ancient writers tell us that he felt unworthy to be crucified the way Christ was, so he said, crucify me upside down. And writers say, Peter, quote, Peter deemed it a glorious thing to die for Christ. Even a Christian's death can be glorifying to God. You know, that's the absolute surrender. I was trying to find out. I read. I was reading about a, a old saints that, and I couldn't. I was. Tr- I was asking my Ken, "What did we see? Was it, you know, um, Martin Luther? I mean, Ma- Martin uh, Lloyd Jones? You know, because he." And then I got to reading about Martin Lloyd Jones and how he died, and how he talked about preparing. We prepare for. We prepare for trips, don't we? But dying is a trip. Shouldn't we also be preparing for that? And he said. Martin Lloyd Jones said that he he had a lingering illness, and you know sometimes want to just die instantly. That's me in my sleep because I don't want because it's a fear of dying. But he is in his writing said, it's a I, he was thankful for the slow dying that he did because it gave him time to prepare and to be close to God and to really get ready and to say goodbye to who he needed to say goodbye for. We don't prepare for that. We spend most of our time and our money fighting it off, don't we? Vaccines, whatever, don't get me sick, whatever. You know, Satan has got us with this stuff. It's going to happen. We prepare to die by living for him. So, death is glorifying, and Peter lived his life that way. So it's a sacrifice, a total sacrifice. So we have total love, total surrender, and the third thing was totally committed Christians focus on following Christ's leading, following Jesus and obeying him. And so, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me, follow me. Peter turned. I love this. Follow me. So here they go. Follow me. And we start going down. And what do we see back then is all of a sudden Peter's turned around. Well, how can you follow someone when you're turning around? The very first thing he does is turn around. Still that impulsive stuff going on with Peter, huh? But he didn't turn around out of, well, I'm going to die on a cross. What's, how's John going to die? It wasn't a matter of that. It was a matter of their closest Peter and John had together. And he had just heard how he was going to die. And he did have, I think, a very intimate wanting to know how John was. And he said, well, what about, what about him? And Peter cuts it off and immediately puts him in his place and rebukes him. And he says, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. I want you to follow me. It does not matter whether he stays with me until I come again or not. That is none of your business. You follow me. Twice he tells him, you 
follow me. It was a rebuke. Peter was only supposed to keep his eyes on Christ. Peter had not followed continuously. But now, Jesus was telling him, you have got to follow steadfastly, almost like blinders on, following Christ. Because if Peter was going to be one of the leaders of the the church in the early days, he's going to have to have blinders on and not go here or there. Because what's following him behind him? The whole church movement was following behind him. So he needed to keep his eyes on Christ. Follow. Totally devoted to Christ. You know, I, uh, this really sunk into me when I realized that. Because especially as moms, we get caught up on praying for our grandkids, praying for our kids, praying for, you know, whatever, and all this stuff. And it's like, no, I'm just going to pray about it, and God's going to take care of it. I'm going to use Celia as an example this morning. So Celia left her notebook here, and I had it. Cece gave it to me, and I had it. She wasn't here last or whenever. And I said, oh, i got to get this. Should I call her? Should I tell her I have it? Should I just I said, no, God, I'm just going to pray. How am I going to get my notebook with Celia? So this morning, I was just going by their old house, and I brought some dog business to her dog. And lo and behold, there's Celia showing up. I didn't have to call her. I didn't do anything. It was like God ordained it that we were able to pass that off. I had my eyes focused on God and not worrying about how Celia's going to get her notebook. Does that make sense in a way? Right? You can relate to some of those things, can't you? All right. And John closes this out by debunking any rumors, any rumors that were there that he was going to live until the second coming, which was good. Final point here. Peter was God's choice to be the most significant voice for the gospel to the Jews in the beginning days of the church. He was going to be the main figure in the opening chapters of Acts, so his leadership needed to be right on. So by Jesus tying up all this stuff for Peter in front of the other apostles, he was saying to him, he's going to be the one that you follow. A committed Christian loves Christ more than anything else. Committed Christian sacrifices everything for Christ. A committed Christian follows Christ. And Peter might have been the shepherd of Christ, but John was the faithful witness of Christ. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. What a great segue into our book for next year in Acts to really, because it starts out the first couple chapters in our study of Acts, verse 12, um, with, with Peter. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you love us, that you have opened up this word to us, that you've made it clear to us, you've revealed yourself to us, and you've made it clear of what you want us to do. And not only that, you have empowered us with your spirit to be able to pull it off, to your glory, in the name of Christ, amen.